out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Meg Lee Jin, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. A singer-songwriter, audio and video producer, plus a writer, art activist, one-time member of Pigface, has done lots of solo stuff and lots of other bits and pieces besides. It's a fascinating story, probably one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done, so a big excitement. So um, do take notes because I will test you at the end to make sure you were paying attention. But anyway, look, this is the interview. I'll just get on with it, really. Um, so after several minutes of casual chat, that gets edited out. You don't need to hear about that. We get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Meg, it's over to you. Well, um, anything that had a picture of a ballerina on it was uh, my, the, the first music, because uh, when, when I was very little, it was uh, classical music, uh, Tchaikovsky. I, I, I actually doesn't, didn't know what I was listening to. It was just um, any album that had a ballerina on the cover was pretty much it. Right. Where were you born? By Where, where were you growing up at this stage? Uh, the, this was in um, Taipei, Taiwan. Right. And uh, it, it was in the days pre-copyright uh, uh, when Taiwan used to have lots of uh, copyright-free, or in other words, illegal recordings. So, um, you know, for the two years that we we lived there, I mean, I grew up in the States, but for the two years that we lived there, uh, between seven years old and nine years old, uh, we, we, we got to listen to, uh, well, pretty much everything we wanted. Yes, well, there you go. As we used to have in the seventies, we used to borrow records from the library, and it's always always have the sign or something printed on. Home taping is killing music. We still <laughs> recorded it though. So, but if you liked it enough, you eventually went and bought the record. So you're so. What did you spend all your early years in Taiwan, or did you did you say you moved? No, um, I, I actually grew up in a small town uh, called Pembroke, Massachusetts, and um, I lived there. Um, looking the way I do uh, during the period of the Vietnam War, mm. which was a little bit unfortunate uh, because um, most people seem to think I look like the enemy. And indeed, I guess I did look a bit like the enemy. Did you, did so, you move there with your parents? Um, yeah, well, uh, my, my mom's Taiwanese and my dad was in the US Air Force. And um, so, so we went back to his hometown. And right. uh, yeah, so I mean, so it was a it was a romantic story ish. <laughs> um, you know, it sounds romantic now, but at the time, um, food it, it was pretty scary. Six years old, walking to school by myself, and um, I had no idea. I mean, people talk about racism now. <laughs> oh God, they don't know the half of it. It yes. was um, it was far worse then. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. You, and at that stage, were you trying to become a ballerina, or your parents were kind of keen putting you into that direction? No, I think I, I was like most uh, children, mo most little girls. Uh, <laughs> um, lots of little girls want to be a ballerina, but um, you know, my my sisters. Uh, there's a big age gap between my sisters and I, and they listened to the Beatles and the Stones, and you know, all all the teenage rock music of the time. 
So, um, yes. yeah. So, and were you, and and did you say were your were your parents at all you know into music you know because I mean my parents were that generation which is well I suppose they were quite young during the Second World War but yeah I mean they they kind of like country music and they like Elvis Presley and and a lot of people like Teresa Brewer and those kind of I don't know I suppose crooners really not not pe- particularly people like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin but there was a lot of women sort of. Who, who were sort of from the 50s that used to write those, you know, not write, but used to sing those kind of rather syrupy songs. Yeah, I mean, my, my mum had very good taste in music. You know, she liked Hank Williams. She liked everything from the country stuff. She liked uh, Bebopalula and Runaway, you know, Del Shannon and Elvis. Of course, she loved Elvis. Fantastic. But, uh, and my dad um, only listened to classical music. So uh, dad and I listened to classical music and um, the rest of the heathens (laughs) running around listening to rock and roll. So it's all really ironic, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. uh, They brainwashed me. Yeah. They brainwashed (laughs) me. I know nothing like it. So during the 70s then, you were coming to that age, I suppose, where you started to, were you becoming aware of that kind of, you know, I don't know, the glam period in America? Or I don't know. The, I suppose you didn't really have glam in America. We had it in the UK with those bands I mentioned at the beginning. But did you start to get interested in the in sort of pop radio and pop stations? Oh yes, yeah. Uh, top top forty pop music is what we listen to. So um, we had a good variety uh, of music around our house because um, that there were a few generations. So. Um, Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, so how, in, many, in, how many sorry. brothers and, and how, how many brothers and sisters did you have? Well, I've got three sisters and no brothers. Um, yeah. So, but but there's a large age gap between us, me, and my sisters. So I tend to see them as a different sort of uh, thing. I my siblings are more my cousins. They they're the people in my neighborhood where I grew up with, and they were my age. But uh, my sisters seem like a different sort of species yeah that's well so it's kind of always interesting because I was the youngest of three boys I suppose and there was a bit of an age gap between my first two you know the my brothers and then there was me I think there was a bit of an afterthought I think actually they were trying for a daughter actually and and, and then my (laughs) you you and I are sort of um opposites because uh, they were trying for a boy. Right, okay. I think after the third, they went, right, that's it. We're not going for a fourth. But yeah, so there was that element, actually. So there was a bit of a, a gap. But so I, though I w- was one of three, there was, they, they, my two brothers were already going to school. So I was, I wasn't the only child, obviously, but there was a certain sense of that. I had the house to myself when I was growing up to the age of five before going to school myself. And I was very influenced because my older brother was seven years older than me. And he was very, in, he got into the sort of world of prog rock and heavy metal, not really heavy metal, but sort of a bit of rock in the 70s with Deep Purple and um, Black Sabbath. But he was really into Oh, I loved of, those bands. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have got along well with your brother. Yes, and, but he really we, we loved would probably like smoke dope and skip school and taking drugs together. Well, interestingly enough, it, my, he was very serious. So he, I don't know if this was a, a common thing or just a sweeping statement, but when he was at that age where he, you know, he was getting into this music, he was also very, you know, bizarrely career-minded. We came from a, a very working-class country background, so nobody 
went on no one hardly took exams when they got to 16 they just left school worked in a factory that was their life but he actually went on and went to university and he was an accountant he was really into that world and he was very focused and 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 serious so he didn't drink or smoke dope but he used to listen to you know wish wishbone ash barclay james harvest yes genesis and and on, on the on the side you know a bit of heavy rock as well so it was quite you know it's got a bit of a cliche because somehow that that does fit a certain model that that sort of I suppose a lot of people who like those bands were generally men. And I think if you went to those gigs, they were mostly men. You know, I don't think many women got into prog rock in that period. I think there was a very, you know, because there was a lot of twiddly music, wasn't it? I, I think it's still the same way, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, uh, yeah, fun, a funny phenomenon. You know, I was in an all-girl band, Crunch. And, um, you know, we, we, we were a metal band and, and I noticed it's really common with girl bands that, um, that they want to be metal bands. I, I don't know. I think it's, um, you know, it, it really is the extreme of macho and it, it's a bit like, um, well, we can do that. <laughs> we can do that too, which is a funny sort of thing, really. Yes, absolutely. So when you hit 16, were you still at school at that stage? Oh, yeah. And did you sort of continue on? Did you did you go through to a higher education, or did you? Oh just... yeah, yeah. I mean, um, in in fact, I've lived my whole life regretting that I left school. I loved it. I, I fought with my parents because, um, you know, from an immigrant family, my mom really uh, wanted me to go to university. You know, of course, it was her real dream, and I didn't want to go. But um, you know, when I went, it ended up being the best time in my life. I wish I never left. Yes, it's it's yeah. great, isn't it? So when yeah. so when did you decide music was going to be your thing? Well, um, I think music was always the thing because uh, what I really liked when I was a kid was dancing. Because similar to you, the uh, the teenagers, you know, I, I saw them as a block. You know, like um, one unit, the three of them were one unit. And then then there was me, you know, they they were they were always um, doing their own thing. So so uh, we lived in Taiwan. I lived quite an isolated existence because when we first moved there, we, we were kind of plopped into the, the middle of a slum. Yeah. And we had the only house in the middle of the slum and it had like high security fences and stuff. And of course, this was at a time where, um, you know, little princesses like me would get kidnapped if they went, um, if they left the grounds. So um, I had to, you know, I had, had to spend the whole time in my playroom. And um, so, so I, I think this, this is the thing. I think it's pr pretty common for people that are maybe isolated when they're children to develop a, a real sort of a, a rich sort of like um, fantasy life or imagination yes. you know, just to fill in the void so and I, I think that's pretty common probably common with you as well as you had the big uh you know the, the big age gap as well yeah so. and and i suppose you know looking back at that period of growing up being in a village you know we didn't there wasn't that much going on so you had to spend a lot of time with your imagination probably talking yeah. to myself and pretend yeah. <laughs> and just kind of pottering around because you know parents were just like they didn't have the money to say oh look here's a five or here's a ten or go to the sort of next little town and to be honest there wasn't that much even in the next little town you'd have to go 
30 or 40 miles to something a bit more exciting. So there was a lot of time just kind of using your imagination. And probably, I mean, you didn't feel lonely at that stage because you didn't know any different, but I realized, you know, there was only a couple of kids also in the village. And if you didn't get on with them, that was it. You know, you were just yeah, talking to yeah. the trees and everything. So, so when you were, so when you, you'd been born in Taiwan, then you went to America, then you went back to Taiwan again? Yeah, you know, um, so I, I had only known America because I, I was about a year and a half when we moved to Massachusetts. And, um, you know, so I moved there at the age of seven. You know, it was a real culture shock. It's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, children, they, there's one thing about America. America is made for children. You know, Britain is made for adults. But America is, is made for children. And um, when when you grow up in America and you leave at, at the age of seven and you go to another country, well, as an adult, you appreciate uh, the richness and the culture. Mm. But um, back when I was seven years old, I certainly didn't appreciate it. And I just spent the whole time <laughs> wondering when we were going to go back to America. Right. So, so how long did you then stay, spend you know abroad oh, just two years right so just, you then... just two years in taiwan yeah we went, went back to the states after that and did your dad spend his whole life in the in the forces in the military uh no um he left and he worked um as a sort of electronics engineer and um he, at one point he actually worked uh for an a, atomic energy <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I shouldn't say that, but um, yeah, my dad contributed to that. Yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that, that world that we were all very convinced that nuclear energy was going to be the way forward until it started leaking. <laughs> and, uh, and then it started going terribly wrong. And there was this kind of documentary I watched recently where they were worried that the, the core of the reactor would just go through straight through to the um, other side of the world. They called it the China syndrome. The, the China syndrome, yeah. Um, I, I'm actually a fan of nuclear, but not uh, plutonium-based. I'm actually a fan of thorium. I don't know if you've heard of thorium. No, I've not come across thorium. Well, uh, thorium, thorium was being developed in the 50s alongside plutonium. But the thing with thorium is uh, thorium is so safe that the scientists used to shut off the thorium reactor on the weekend and, uh, and it's a, of a magnitude safer than plutonium but of course you cannot weaponize thorium right so of course so of course they went and developed the plutonium now interestingly enough china are now developing thorium and india has a very small i believe it's um only something ridiculously small a, a hundred kilowatts or something like that I, don't quote me but a ridiculously small but it's the thorium reactor so um thor thorium has a lot of potential for the future but unfortunately it's um it's a it, it's for political reasons that uh that we ended up with the the really dangerous dirty and um destructive plutonium-based reactors so yeah. yeah, it's not good, but it's worth looking into thorium. Oh, yes. God, this is... Um, yeah, no, Write it I, down! I will, I'm going to have to Google that later, aren't I? But then... I know, this is, this is science meets music. But then, interestingly, you... Um, yeah. Yes, the punk period came along, 76, 77. Did that sort of come into your consciousness and, and orbit? 
Well, I lived in Poway, California, and um, oof, I really didn't fit in. Um, not good to move teenagers because they're just beginning to bond with um, you know the other teenagers in the neighborhood. And of course, I moved at the age of sixteen, and um, yeah, I was like a fish out of water. So I'd read about punk music in England. And um, although we didn't have any of the crazy color things like that, I figured out how to bleach my hair myself and um, and dye it blue with food coloring. So that went down the street in little Poway um, way back. <laughs> was it a conservative little, was it, you know, with a small seat? Oh, I, I, I thought it was, you know, I, I, um, you know, at the end of the day, you grow up in one place and uh, if you're sort of a teenager and you move to another, you're never happy. Teenagers hate moving. Yes, so. I could imagine it was very, very tricky indeed. So then as the 80s approached, we had sort of in this country, Margaret Thatcher got in 79 and things started getting much more sort of put over to the right. And then there'd been the Falkland War, which kind of made everyone a bit strange. Well, not strange, but, you know, has, a, has an effect on the nation, I suppose. And then, you know, we had the minor strike and then sort of post-punk. So what was your 80s kind of period like? Um, well, the 80s for me was, uh, that's, did I move to? Yes, well, well I lived in England. I came to Britain in 1980, well, it was the end of 85, so technically it was 86. I, I believe I came here in November of 85. And so, um, yeah, so the, by the mid 80s, I was here, I was here when Margaret Thatcher was in office. Yes, um, she was there till 1991, I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, my impression of England, and how can I say this? Well, I don't. I, I don't want to say um, I liked it better than, but uh, but I liked it better than. <laughs> <laughs> just just mostly because uh, when I first moved to um, London, it was like um, it was like like a dream come true for musicians, you know. So yes. there, there was thoughts, and um, you know there there was still that kind of culture. There there was a little bit of uh, bohemia. And um, you know, it seemed like lots of people were in bands and that sort of thing. And um, you know, London's really changed a lot. I would, I would imagine it's changed a very lot. But then, you know, the age. So, so the, the the kind of that period. Were you studying when you came to the UK, or were you, was this kind of to do with sort of your your family sort of situation? <laughs> Shall I tell you the truth? Oh God, that's exciting! Yeah. <clears throat> well, well, I, I came here because of a boyfriend, but I wasn't oh. following a boyfriend. I was trying to get away from a boyfriend. <laughs> oh right! Oh blimey! Yeah, so, yeah. so um, yeah, you know, for, well, it was uh, Becky Rack and I, uh, Becky from the Luna Chicks. Her, her and I, um, we'd had a band, and it was short-lived, and when it fell apart. We really liked our guitar player, little Joe Goldring, who, um, you know, Joe, Joe has been um, in various bands, uh, Toiling Midgets, The Swans, his own band, Wade. 
the enablers he's he's in now but uh we liked his guitar playing so much and he was english and we figured well that there's no decent guitar players in san francisco (laughs) ridiculous thing to say right but but this is what we thought at the time so we thought well you know we'll we'll come over to europe so we, we 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 saw a really cheap flight to belgium and uh becky ended up joining a band called la merte in belgium and i came on i i can't came on to England by myself and um you know I just sort of got into the squat scene straight away and uh yeah so that that was London for me and and it was brilliant back in the day because um there were squats I was a busker that's the other thing Mm -hmm. and that was excellent I don't know what it's like today they've all got the really really cool um Oh, that, those amps, what are they called? They're called AER, Acoustic Research. They're really expensive. They're like um, 1,500 pounds for, for the smallest. And it makes them sound like they're in a stadium. I mean, nice. wish we had that so, so, so this was quite an adventure, wasn't it? 1985. You were, you're still quite... Um, Oh, I'm joined. You're still really young, actually. <laughs> that seemed very exciting. But then I also I've done quite a lot of interviews with Australian bands, and they, during that period, a lot of them sort of thought, actually, we need to be in in England or Europe, and a lot came to sort of uh, London. And squatting seemed to be quite a common thing, and a lot of those bands at that stage that I've interviewed because of the indie scene, I suppose, um, yeah, that was the way to just live very very cheaply and um, do your artistic thing for a few years to see if it worked out so what did you sort of easily find a community of people during that period oh yeah I mean back when I was young I used to be really sociable I wasn't cynical and antisocial and jaded and twisted like I am now I was like most young people optimistic uh, cheerful and and, um, looking towards a bright future yeah, absolutely. That that's 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 the joy of youth before we all all become a bit sort of yeah, cynical. Yeah. Then yeah. So were, were there any particular bands that you kind of started to sort of form or or even hang out well, with? Well, um, it well, well, Crunch was my um, all girl band. It, that, that's when I was in my really heavy feminist phase. Yeehaw, and uh, I love that. Kind of understandable when when I'd come to. To London, the um, sort of women's liberation movement for, or the feminist movement, or whatever you want to call it, was um, it had made a lot more impact in the states than it had in the UK. So I, I found the UK really difficult, uh, especially since I came from San Francisco. And San Francisco is um, that there's a saying that um, they took America and tipped it on its side, and all the weirdos went to San Francisco. San Francisco is very, very left wing, you know, re- really radical left wing politics and stuff. It, it, it always has been. Um, so when, when I came to London, you know, to my shock, I found it, oof, it was, it, it was really difficult for women, I found you know, a lot worse than now. I'm shocking, really. Well, I suppose... Because I'd come from San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, there was a a lot of those kind of... um, I I think it was the 80s. It might have been late 80s. Reclaim the Night or Reclaim the Streets kind of marches, I remember. And there was a lot of um, women's centres as well in most cities and towns that started to spring up as as well as um, 
talking about the music business in particular, because uh, it, especially in recording studios, that was really tough. And, and the music business in general. I mean, they really, um, they really, in studios, they really weren't interested in anything that I could do musically. Pretty much bands had, uh, there was always a guy that was a Spengali type that wanted the singer to be well, kind of like a Barbie doll. Mm -hmm. Let's have this image. And they always kind of wanted to mold a woman, you know, and that that was really difficult for me. Um, things didn't change in my life until the advent of computers and digital recording. And um, that's when I finally got to, um, well, got to show what I could do. Yes, you know? absolutely. I think, um, yeah, because during that, the 80s, I mean, in the 70s, there was kind of people like Susie Quattro had appeared as well as, um, you know, members of Talking Heads. And then obviously there was Sonic Youth and Lydia, Lydia Lunch. And then we also had the singer-songwriter. I mean, there'd been Joni Mitchell and also Carole King. But then in the 80s, you know, Michelle Schock came along and that was a big moment. Yeah. And then Susan Vega and Tracy Chapman and everyone went, wow, that's beautiful. But they, you know, there was a certain genre. There wasn't, I think it was kind of the, the latter part. I mean, there was a lot of indie bands that had started to spring up, like the, the shop assistants who were, had various people and the flatmates as well. And then a bit later, Amelia Fletcher in Tallulah Gosh, there was also another band who started to have more women in, in bands. But um, yeah, you're right, it probably was quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it wasn't so much the bands because there were women in bands. It was just how, uh, I mean, A&R men were awful back in the day. They were not not just A&R men. Um, they, just kind of everybody in the industry they uh, I just always got the sense that they wanted you know it, it was like this latent um desire because they missed out on playing with Barbie dolls this latent desire to take a woman and be a Spengali you know like yeah. a little and you know turn her into a star baby and of course um had, oh, I mean, you know, garbage. I auditioned for garbage. I was the first person to audition. And it was kind of like that vibe with them, you know. So th this this was completely normal. So I, I, I spent a, quite a few, great many years, um, you know, not, not quite finding a niche. Yes, I know. This is, this is tricky. How, how long did Crunch last for and, and your oh, London um, experience? Well, well, Crunch was... Um, you know, I, I guess our, our best moments were um, when we went to Russia and, and we were the first band to play uh, in the U.S., former USSR, you know. And this was during the Glasnost period, right after uh, Gorbachev was uh, ousted and uh, Yeltsin came in, you know. So um, that was uh, probably the pinnacle for Crunch. After that, we tried to resurrect crunch but it sort of fell apart i mean becky wreck my old friend from uh, belgium uh and the lunatics joined the band for a brief time but uh, well you know there, there were drugs at that point drugs i know it's never gonna work well especially if no <laughs> Yeah, uh, part of the thing in rock and roll, though, isn't it? It does go together, really. I know Hawkwind had a lot of problems because they all took drugs, but 
the camp was split between those who took LSD and those who took speed. And I don't think the two of them really, the two little groups didn't sort of, it didn't work particularly well. So I think, I think if you're going to take drugs in a band, you all have to stick to the same drug really, don't you? Yeah. Well, I, I was always the boring, dull person. <laughs> Amongst a bunch of really wild, for some reason I attracted or ended up um, always being, I mean, pink face, you know, <laughs> but for some reason, I, I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe I'm a bit like Charlie Brown, you know, a bit <laughs> the bland <laughs> one, you know what I mean? Everybody else is like mad all around me, but I, I'm just kind of the... Um, kind of boring on pig face toys i never did drugs and i never drank my god i know that must have been um... i know shocking isn't it yeah, yeah. well not yeah well though <laughs> though everybody i've ever interviewed always always says you know i wish i didn't drink or take so many drugs when i was but yes it's good that you didn't even have to sort of have that kind of moment of looking back regret and going that were, they were wasted years so then with crunch did you have a moment when did it kind of when did you decide, actually, this is the end of the band? Oh, no. No, you don't want to hear that. You really don't. It, it, it was, um, oh, no. We had a terrible, very, very traumatic falling apart in New York. And it had to do with... Um, band members taking drugs and i'm just gonna leave it at that <laughs> right there you go that's that's it, oh, at, least, at least it was in new york yeah, well. it, it, well, it was oh it was um your, your typical rock and roll story i wouldn't be out of place in kerouac's on the road or <laughs> what, so what, was, what was the year though can you say what the year was well i think crunch broke apart in um well, I'm guessing, ooh, well, when I got back from New York, so I'm not sure what year that would be. Um, I mean, we, we tried to keep going for a while, but really New York was the end. We played CBGBs, we played at the Continental Club, and we went up like flames. So that, God, that, that was fantastic. Happy times. <laughs> yes and no it culminated in um me me and another band member screaming on the top of a roof of a tenement sort of building in new york we couldn't leave and um we were locked out the the taxi was coming we were locked out of our loft and uh, we couldn't leave because th this was a period in new york where there was so much crime in Williamsburg. I mean, you wouldn't recognize it today, but there was so much crime in the street that um, you literally couldn't walk out the door. In fact, um, we, we had a little uh, Japanese, like a Toyota truck we drove around with, and we were in New York for four weeks. And in the four weeks we were there, I believe we, we heard five gunshots, or was it it was either three gunshots in four weeks or five gunshots in four weeks. It might have been three. It was too many, too many gunshots. And one of them hit the window of our little uh, Japanese truck, but not while we were in it. Thank God. Yeah. That's so tricky, actually. Because most bands, what I find with most bands, they last this five-year narrative. You know, they have the one-year honeymoon, if they're really lucky. Then the single... Yeah an album you know and in this country we had John Peel who was uh, you know very influential and also we had the three music papers like the NME 
sounds melody maker and then it's often the second album where things are getting a bit tricky because the band are like and also there's a lack of money that's kind of not really helping anybody want to stay around much longer and then by the third album that's normally it so so roughly how how many years did crunch last for i'm thinking that crunch lasted about five or six years oh classic i I think uh, (laughs) i think you got that down yeah Yeah, the way it works is is your band sort of takes off and from there the pressure gets um the pressure comes on not to leave i mean um the the band very often because traveling around with the same people all the time i mean it's difficult being in a two-way marriage but it's um, you can multiply that. It, you, you can at least double it, if not quadruple it, if um, if you're dealing with like three, four, or five other people, and mm. then there's managers and agents and everybody else as well. So, and then there's drugs. <laughs> <laughs> God, I know you make it sound so easy. Um, easy. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, what, it wasn't it was, easy. It wasn't easy, was it really? It probably left you emotionally. So didn't, how did you, you in New York, things have kind of come to the end, to vaguely paraphrase um, Jim Morrison. Then what happens for the rest of the 90s? Um, then it was pig face. Pig face. You know, yeah. So um, Shannon and Meredith, who were, um, I mean, they were brilliant. They, they, they managed to manage crunch. Um, I mean, I, I had to make a fateful phone call and it was you know, with a heavy heart from New, New York and I had to say it's over. They had us, a, a, they had us, we had record deals on both sides of the Atlantic. Everybody wanted us and uh, we just went up in flames, you, you know. Because at that stage, you mentioned the Lunar Chicks. There was also people like the uh, band of Susan, Susan's yeah. and... L7 came along didn't they as well which was quite interesting just in that moment did you also you know start recording did you record the first ever Faith Faith No More's first ever demo with Courtney Courtney Love yes um you know they they Billy had a um Tascam 144 and he sold it and um I got a Tascam 244 and um you know, so he'd already sold his. So they, they asked if I could record them. So I recorded them in my flat in Hate Street. And uh, briefly, Courtney Love came along. And she, um, I mean, it didn't, the track didn't have a vocal, it had l- laughing on it. And um, so Courtney came along to do the laughing, the vocal, the laughing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess uh, Roddy didn't like it. So he erased it and recorded over it himself. And our recording got number one on the KUSF demo tape show that week. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic, though. So that's... Yeah, I recorded over the, the tape. It was a TDK SA 60-minute tape. And I recorded over it because it was too expensive <laughs> to buy another one. God. Yeah, Sad, isn't it? Yeah, pathetic. Well, I mean, at the time, you never know, do you? I don't know. Yeah, don't. You just don't, you can't predict it. But then you also got, before you pig face, did you also start making um, music videos as well for MTV? Um, yeah, well, what happened was, well, th- this was um, before I was even in bands. Um, well, what I did was, it, I, I spent about six months. It, this seems to be normal for me. 
uh, to spend a long time on something. But um, I spent about six months and I shot it all in Super 8. And, um, you know, I did it very painstakingly and carefully. You know, I, I, I did lots. I went to the Tate Gallery to research the uh, headdress. And I even I made the headdress myself, 1920s deco style, you know, beautiful headdress. And, um, you know, they liked it so much on MTV that the producer called me up and said, uh, you set this tape in and you, you, you're an unsigned musician. And you said you've made this for 200 quid. And I said, yes. And he goes how did you make it for 200 quid? He said, I can't believe it. He said, um, Duran Duran just did a video and it cost something like 200,000 quid. Mm. How did you make a video for 200 quid that's better than Duran Duran's? And I said, well, I guess I've got good taste. So, <laughs> nice. That's very good. So yeah. as, as the 90s, we had, obviously, there'd been the grunge period, and then in this country, Britpop. And then you were working with Pigface. Was this on the album uh, A New High and Low? Um, the first album, I'm not sure. I, I think it might have been uh, A New High and Low. It was uh, Shannon and Meredith who put me on to Martin, and he hired me over the phone. Um, you know, when, when Crunch broke up and Shannon and Meredith, they were these two brilliant women that um, sort of managed us, Crunch. Yes. And, uh, you know, but Martin Atkins was looking for a singer because Leslie Rankine, I think they'd had a, a sort of falling out. And so he, he was looking for a singer to replace her. So um, I didn't know a lot about Pigface, you know, but Obviously, I had the background in heavy metal music. I mean, I loved metal music when I was a kid, you know, not a little kid, because then I only liked ballet. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so on the metal front, was it the heavy metal stuff of the kind of the British 70s scene, you know, going into sort of, you know, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath? status quo they're not really well, heavy metal but then there was motorhead which we loved and then there was la rock which had people like oh, oh no I, I i like I, I like and still like um i especially like the production value of 70s rock like like zeppelin um i liked uh aerosmith you know and i i, I like the sound of the production so, sort of like bad company and things like that i don't mm. like when it i'm not wild about the prog stuff and I didn't like when metal, I definitely didn't like the hair metal when they started using lots of digital reverb mm. on the drums and oh, digital reverb on everything. Oh, just awful. But um, the, the really good organic 1970s style recordings, those are what I still like. Nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Alice Cooper. I liked Alice Cooper when I was a kid. Yeah. Black yeah. Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> well, School's Out was always a classic. So how oh, did you... yeah. Uh, how did you find Pigface? Because Martin Atkins had been, who I did an interview with, Pigface is quite an extraordinary sort of idea, isn't it, really? But he had yes, been yeah. image limited. So how was the experience? Because they were also quite a wild and exciting bunch, weren't they? M Mar Martin's a very, very, you know, unusual guy with an unusual talent. He's a bit... You know, I'll have to say a, a bit like the Andy Warhol of the industrial scene. He, he's kind of like a ringmaster, like like of a circus, right. you know, and uh, that man puts up 
with the kind of stress and it just rolls right off of him. I mean, he, he, he just loves the insanity. And um, well, I wouldn't be able to do that. And I don't think anybody else would be able to do that. Maybe Andy Warhol would be able to do it. Yeah, I know. But, it's Because uh, I think, was Chris Connolly part of that world and, and ministry? Yes. yes, yeah, Chris Connolly. And um, well, I mean, pretty much everybody. Everybody, you know, I know. So, it, yeah, was, no, it was a home for sort of any artist, really, wasn't it, Pig Face? It, it was how wild. You, how long did your Pig Face uh, phase um, last? Well, I'm thinking that my first tour was in... Um, oh, shit, hang on. Let me just uh, hang up this... Um, as soon as I figure out where it is... Oh, yeah, here it is. I've dropped it on the ground. Nice okay. jingle there. Sorry, sorry, I'll turn... Should turn that down. Sorry, I'm thinking. Um, okay, uh, so the internet was. It was either 1993 or 1995. I think. It, yeah. Yes. I think either 1993 or 1995. It was one of those two. And then I think I left in about two thousand and um maybe the year 2000 or 2002 so I, oh no this is your mathematical formula the algorithm your secret algorithm i think like about probably five six or seven years yes there you go that's a good one so by yep. so so was there a sort of had you just kind of grown a little bit like you needed to to move on from that you know from that period well um it, it it was more a um well i'm not allowed to talk about it <laughs> i'm not allowed to talk about it cuz um i signed a legal agreement gotcha don't talk about that then <laughs> no but that but that's to do with pig face was it that's kind of no, it, it was it was to do with the record label. Ah, right. Gotcha. Yeah. There you go. 2000 millennium, new beginning, new decade. So then you were on your, you were back on the road again, so to speak. Uh, on what road? Well, the road to another creative. Avenue. No, what, what, what happened um, was I, I, I developed a friend, a friend of mine and me, Julian Standen, we created a really successful website uh, inadvertently. We stumbled into it. Uh, Gearslets.com, it's since been changed to Gearspace. Right. And um, so I spent five, I, I gave up music for five years, basically because I told my mom, you know, I've got a sort of like a, well, I had, my mom passed away, but I had a sort of, um, tiger mum Taiwanese mum oh fantastic what was that yes. like well it, it was sort of like um she was always worried it, and it always pained my mom the life that I led but I, I always said to her I said look mum you know I, I, I'm smart if if I get if I start to get old don't worry about me I'll figure out something to do you know I'll get a job or I'll do something you know yeah and um so when gear slut started to take off and take off it did but we got really really lucky with gear sluts 
So um, what happened is a friend of mine, I, I was in LA, I was still on tour. And uh, a friend of mine, I was staying at a, a, a fan of uh, Pigface, uh, loaned me his apartment because that's the sort of cool things that uh, some of the fans do like in the States, you know. But um, so I was there and I was twiddling my thumbs. I was in between tours and my friend phoned up and said, oh, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm really depressed. Everybody's leaving my favorite forum because the owner has started charging money. And uh, this forum was one that he was a moderator on. He was an unpaid moderator. And I said, well, you know, I've got time. I, I can do a forum. And he said, you're kidding. You can do that. See, because um, I've always been geeky. You know, we, we had no brothers. Mm. And so the, the little electronic toys, uh, like the little, um, you call them Maplin, but we used to call them Radio Shack, those 101 projects where you build radios and stuff. Uh, he used to buy those for me when I was like six years old. <laughs> right. I mean, basically, dad used to buy me uh, presents that he wanted to play with himself, you know, because he was a geek, you know, so, so I've had geekiness uh, around me for a long time. So, you know, while I was a musician, for fun, I used to just mess around with websites and stuff in the internet, because I love the internet. I mean, I, I, the, the internet and computers were a godsend to me because they, they meant I could produce my own music and not have to uh, work your way through the studio hierarchy of, um, you know, often chauvinist studios that are very hierarchical, yeah. you know. So, um, well, I created a website, and within 48 hours, the entire membership of Recording.org, recording .org, they came over to our site. Now, this is kind of like, um, I won't say unprecedented, but... You know, it was a stroke of luck because getting a website going, you can ask anybody, is not easy. You know, getting a forum going. Mm. And the thing is, is because the other guy started charging money, he sort of dropped the ball. And within 48 hours, the entire membership, including all the moderators, came to our site. So, so it took off. Sorry. Yeah, I was it, just going to say, just to, to explain that, Gear, gear Slut, or now Gear Space, so it's, the yeah. dude, it's a forum where people go and they can talk about musical gear. Is this true? Well, what it is, is it's a uh, money machine, yeah? Because unlike, unlike music, where you have to produce something, yeah, mm -hmm. and you get royalties for it, if you've got a forum... Other people contribute content, well, a bit like if you have a Facebook, yeah? But with yeah. the forum, it's easier because, you know, it's easier to run than Facebook. So, um, you know, other people contribute content. Google indexes that content. Uh, when people search for certain bits of equipment, Google puts up your site and uh, that draws more people. And then when, when more people come, these new people contribute even more content and uh, rinse and repeat. Then Google indexes this new content. It, it just grows and grows. And like, you know, one of the problems and one of the things that I think about a lot is uh, I, I'm really against centralized power and I'm really against monopoly. You know, I mean, I'm not like, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not ridiculous you know i understand that there is a need for some hierarchy mm -hmm. you know but what i don't like 
is when hierarchies get too entrenched. And this is the problem with the internet. And you can see this with the uh, gigantic monoliths that we have now uh, in the form of the Facebook and Wikipedia I'm finding lately is, um, is becomes susceptible to this problem of uh, who, he who gets in first benefits disproportionately to uh, any newcomers. So th this sort of rule seems to permeate, permeate life on earth and seems to be like the plague of humanity since the beginning of time, really. Yes. And, uh, you know, like with uh, Gear Sluts, people said to me, uh, see, what happened was my business partner stole the site. He locked me out. And, and so he knew a lot more about the law than I did. And I just really screwed up because when we started the site, we were great friends, but I didn't know he was going to turn around and marry a lawyer who oh. would <laughs> know what to do. God, that's <laughs> a horrendous moment. A musician. I, I, I'm basically, they took my pension, Oh, you know? That's yeah. They, 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 I, I, the only reason I did um, this website and I spent five years working on, it. I couldn't tour, couldn't do anything, you know, cause I hadn't trained as any, as a web developer. So I was just yeah. making it up as I went along. You know, I mean, it, it wouldn't have been so much work for somebody that had trained for it. But the point is, is he couldn't have started the site on his own because he doesn't know how to program or do anything technical at all. You know? Yes. So, so, um, so was it in, in sort of that terms, did he, was it a case that um, it was worth a lot when he decided to yeah, well, well what, what it was is, um, you know, you can look at a trajectory, like if, if you take a look at coronavirus, you know, people go, oh, people didn't get that sick, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, is they're missing the main point about uh, coronavirus, which is this mathematical principle called exponential growth. Mm. So what happens is, um, you know, Gearslutz, at the point where he took it, he took it and I, and legally with his wife and all, he understood that even if I sued him, what I'd get in the settlement is what the site was worth then, then and now. But I, I wasn't working on gear slits for five years. I didn't give up my music career um, in order to make them. I, I gave it up because I wanted a long-term sort of a share. And that's mm. what I was supposed to have was a long-term. I mean, I should have a passive income from Gear Sluts right now, but um, I had it stolen from me. And the settlement I got, if you multiply it by the five years I worked on the site, plus the three years of the time that I had to fight a lawsuit, which was, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, is the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it, when you divide that up, I pretty much worked for minimum wage. So I, I made a big mistake. I, I, I trusted a friend and, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't even know if it was a mistake because I think, you know, you have to have some trust in this world for this world to continue. <laughs> yeah, well, it's tricky, isn't it? To continue, you know, because um, if, if, we, if every musician has to come to rehearsal with their uh, lawyer, you know, in a briefcase, you know, well, well nothing's ever going to get off the ground at some point. You have to be with people and work with people you can trust. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, this is, you know, my my big interest nowadays is um, I'm getting older. I won't be on earth forever. And I'm just, you know, I can see trajectories, um, which I don't like. 
you know, tra trajectories of, uh, you know, cu cultural trajectories, uh, trajectories of how power is moving. And uh, yeah, so this is my interest. My, my, my music's getting, you know, I'm, I'm starting to blend some of these thoughts. Yes, in, in, well, I, I, you know, I've been listening to your music now for a for, for the past week and it's kind of you know it's an amazingly you know, powerful um sonic sake but also lyrically it's quite quite amazing as well i mean did you i mean during that time so with when you were doing your sort of um business was it the case that you'd literally put the music on hold until yeah well well i, I had to because the problem is is um you know if the site went down there'd be thousands of people who couldn't do the thing they love to do. <laughs> the minute it went down, I'd get thousands of emails going, oh my God, blah, blah, blah. These guys were addicted to gear slots. I mean, they're nuts. <laughs> they're on it all the time. Every once in a while, when I had to do maintenance, I'd put up a sign and I'd say, gear slots is down for maintenance. Anyway, shouldn't you be talking to your girlfriend? Or, you know, because these guys spent way too much time on the site, but... Um, yeah. Because no. well, I'm just, I know, I mean, it's a horrible thing. I mean, did you, I mean, two things. Did you sort of looking back realize a moment or now looking back, do you think, oh, yes, I can see my partner was beginning to do something that you had slightly. No, no. I, th that, that's the thing that I find most upsetting. And it's the thing that wakes me up at night. I mean, th this was my best friend, you know, and uh, call me naive. I'm a, I'm a musician and I think we have that inbuilt in us, this sense of, um, you know, we're not going to get anywhere unless we can trust each other. Mm. You know, you, you have to, you know, at, at some point, you know, I, I know later on the lawyers come in and this and that, but, you know, I would say, you know, 90% of the best enterprises on earth, they, they just, they just happen. You, you need a good spirit. It, it's very hard to get projects off the ground. If everybody's really sort of like, mm, you know, a bit worried, a bit scared. So it's a dilemma. It's a real problem. I, I actually think that um, on a higher level, that it's a disease, which uh, re really threatens um, the world as we know it, really. Yes, absolutely. It threatens the future. And you know, this, this now that you on. kind of own the name and you kind of changed it, didn't you, to Gear Space rather than? Oh no, I I don't I don't own the name. Jules, uh, he pretty much, um, you know, there was a lawsuit. I won, but the nature of uh, lawsuits are, um, it it it's sort of like in the UK, it, it's sort of like. Um, possession is nine tenths of the law, right? And you can get away with using um, the theft of a business as a negotiable, because see, in this country, we don't have um, punishment for duress. Believe me, if I could have sued for duress like you can in the United States, I would have gotten a lot of money because boy, I had a lot of duress, and it's not like the usual thing you hear about. Oh, I was, you know, I was so ups. No, no, no. I, I, I really physically, and I, I still have it today. I still have physical problems from it today, just knowing that a very close friend just basically stole my pension. 
and he he knew he knew my relationship with my mom and everything. I was just a really close friend that knew uh, how much it meant to me and how important it was to me and how I was getting older. And I I promised my mom I would quit music if I wasn't making a living. And I thought I thought I'd be able to do both. I thought I'd be able to still do music if I just spent a few years with Giz. That's that's what he promised me. My mom died halfway through the lawsuit, and still my former business partner was such a coward. Um, you know, after he stole the site, I never spoke to him again. We've been best friends for 15 years on the phone nearly every day for 15 years. But he stole the site one day and never spoke to me again. Jesus Christ, that's the most yeah. horrible story ever. Really. It, 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 it's, it's Shakespearean, you know, it's epic. It's just, um, it's, it's um, the, the worst thing that it can do. Like, you know, what? after 9-11, the worst thing it can do is is um, what it does to you yeah mm -hmm. and what it what it did to me with gear sluts even more than the money okay maybe not more than the money but you know equal to the money is um just just my lack of trust and like i said it's very difficult to thing get things off the ground if you can't trust the people that you work with you know so it, yeah. it's it's very, very hard. Yes, after all these years of doing interviews, I never, I've come across obviously all the bands who break up, and mostly after a period of time, they they take a certain ownership that you know they were part of it. But I've never heard a story quite so blatantly sinister and horrible as that. You know, whereas um, you know, somebody obviously thought, oh, if I do this, this, and this, I can take it. And um, yeah, the, the worst bit was he applauded. He must applauded it because he'd put um, he'd set things up you know ahead of time he'd actually planned it and executed it mm. i mean it yeah and 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 i didn't suspect a thing i i think that's the worst thing you, you know you you've heard of the story of anne frank in amsterdam and her dad otto um was very lucky to have um his uh employees and his work uh, colleagues that 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 he trusted you know um but if you look back in that period, 50% of the Jews that were in hiding were turned in by somebody they knew, you know? So, you know, th this issue of trust, you know, and, and who, who you can trust and who you can't trust. Okay, well, I would say like some people look at my case with Julian and go, oh, what an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm like, but if I hadn't trusted him in the first place, it wouldn't have happened. You know, yes. we didn't have the money. It, it wouldn't have happened. We didn't have the money for lawyers. And, you know, so it, it's a real difficult one because people do say to me, oh, shouldn't you be more careful, this and that? And it's like, well, do I want, want to work with anybody I can't trust? Not really. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's kind of why I don't work with anybody now. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's... It, my machines. Yes. So that, just to wrap that up, so that's now just his site and and they've changed it to Gear Space. space. That... Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's bringing in a good living, you know. Um, I think if you look at his company's reports, he takes in about um, $300,000 a year in advertising. So that, that should be partly mine. Well, I, my the deal was, is I, I wasn't going to work forever and I was going to leave and I was would continue to get a third, 
And so I should really have a third of that as passive income, but instead I've got nothing as passive income. And it's kind of the best years of my life, really. You know, Ooh. I'm not the best years, no, because I did go to Russia. I, I I was in pig face, you know, but but there was more, you know, there there still was time for more. And, um, you know, and, and there is still time for more. You know, I, I can still do music. I can still do things and stuff. But, um, yeah, the iron was kind of hot then. You know, yeah, so that's a tough one, actually. So, what's what's what have you? I mean, you've done you know various albums and collaborations, well, vaguely, yeah, with other people. Is that what's happened in the last 10, 15 years? Oh well, um, I lived on a boat because, um, well, because I couldn't afford to live in a flat. <laughs> so um, the boat meant um because I, ha I had like a kilowatt of solar panels which you know everybody that's talking about going solar look forget it, <laughs> it ain't you know um yeah the kilowatt of solar power uh you can't really produce a record on a boat unless you've got a big expensive boat that's very very secure so so that was tough i i lived on a boat for about four or five years you know and um you know that, then I got ill. Um, I got some kind of, I don't know if I caught it from the canal or what could have been from my um, canal water filter. I'm not sure, but I got real ill. And, um, you know, so, so now I've moved back to a flat and now I'm back to doing things so that the projects I've got now. So, so since I got off the boat, I've done sort of three music videos and um so I've got sort of like, I think, four or five music videos. I'm, I'm working on an app called Talkasaurus, and that's a audio-based chat app. And I'm finishing up that. The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do a few more music tracks in videos. And also I have two books to write. Oh, excellent. We love a good book. So yeah. what have you planned for the books? Well, um... I have a site called gearwars.com. That's called, that's uh, G-E-A-R-W-A-R-Z. Now, the good news is, is um, for, for Gear Sluts, I didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement. I turned down the extra money <laughs> and I refused. And I was so pleased. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about 20 or 30,000 pounds. I turned 20 or 30,000 pounds. I turned down extra and I turned that down because I wanted to tell my story. You know, I just thought when I was in the lawsuit, I was so overwhelmed because I'd never, because it was a Davy and Goliath battle. Um, Standard hired the best, one of the top three law firms in the world, you know, because yeah. he, he's got, he comes from a fairly wealthy background and he hired one of the top three law firms in the world i didn't have a lawyer i had to fight it myself you know so i was freaking out you know so there was no information on the internet about real lawsuits nothing you know because people always sign these sneaky the, the more powerful parties always make people sign these non-disclosure agreements, yeah? Mm -hmm. And I refused to, and I'm so glad. Well, because I refused to, I created a site called gearwars.com, G-E-A-R-W-A-R-Z.com. And I've started the skeleton of the Gear Slut story, and I'm going to be filling in more. I mean, my former business partner is um, 
doing his best to try to block everything I talk about on the internet. But I'm not, I'm not doing it to get back at him. I'm, I'm really not. You know, for my own sort of like psychological healing, I've got to be able to forgive the guy, you know. But, I, but the thing is, is I've, I've forgiven the person, but I've not forgiven the act. And I think it's really important for, um, you know, for, for the larger society and the greater community that there is some information about real lawsuits on the internet and specifically Davy and Goliath battles where you're a party that like, maybe you've been a musician all your life. You don't really know many lawyers. You don't really know a lot about the law. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's just really important because like I said, it's like the law is deliberately obfuscated and it's kept like a, a mystery with archaic language and, um, you know, words that baffle the average person. And uh, it, it's just so frightening, the, the amounts of money that are involved. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But, you know, saying that, if anybody does find themselves in the position that I was in, then... Um, I want my story to be there. Mm. So um, very sorry, Julian Standen, but I didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement. I'm entitled to talk about the story and um, people need to know the truth. And you've made a few hundred, a few million pounds off of the site that I built for you. Not not built for you, built for us. Yeah. <laughs> God. Oh, it's, uh, yes. yeah. Shakespearean. But, uh, you know, working on a new app and uh, word has it that Google and a couple of other big companies have got the same idea. So uh, I'll be in another Davy and Goliath battle as I try to do a better app than they do. Well, yes, God, you are very pl a puck plucky, aren't you? you? You do like to keep rocking, don't you, on this one? I've, you know, I, I've always, you know, it goes back to the old childhood in the playroom, you know. I'm always I'm always building or making something, you know, always making or building something, you know. So, um, yeah, now, now that I'm older and I've got sort of like. Um, yeah, it, it's funny because when you get older, it, it's almost like it, it's cool, really. I mean, aside from your body falling apart and um, obviously not as beautiful as used to be, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it it's quite liberating because. Um, you know, you, you've got rid of a lot of things in your life. And um, it, it, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe because my friend Fran died about five years ago. And as she had no family, it was her, her mates that went through all her stuff. And uh, the thing that struck me the most was unfinished projects. Right. So I'm in a race to get as much done before I leave planet earth. And I want to make up for those years because not only did I waste those five years with gear sluts and the three years with the lawsuit, but I was traumatized after that. I mean, look, I was, can I, am I allowed to swear? Yes. I was fucked. You know, I mean, it, it was like post-traumatic stress disorder. I, actually, I'm not over it. I, I'm really not. I, I think like, you know, the site that I'm working on gear wars you know, that that's helping, you know, so yeah. Yeah, lots to do, lots to do before I kick off. Yeah, well, absolutely. That is quite something. And just kind of also, you did a, a, a film 
about two, three years ago, didn't you? England's Mask as well. Which was... Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was all about... Um, so from an American point of view, I think English would listen to me. But, um, <laughs> it, it's just, you come over here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I lived in Taiwan as a kid. I lived in Massachusetts, lived in California. I've come over to England and I really think you know, my observation is that, you know, one thing that doesn't make sense about this country is the wealth of this country. I'm not saying for the average person, but there's an enormous amount of wealth. And I finally figured it out that this country is more or less a financial monoculture with all of its eggs in one basket. And uh, well, there's two things that are propped up. It's the banking system and the property market. And, uh, and, and those are the, those are the, it, it's, um, it's just not sustainable. You know, it's just uh, this whole, this, the, the, the entire world, this country, sorry, sorry, it's based on three things. There's also the inherited wealth, yes. you know, the land. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I, I just thought it had to be done. I, I don't have enough time and I regret that I, didn't have children because um, I could have taught them like um, all the things I know and put them to work because I don't have enough time, I don't think. But um, th there's another video I'd like to do called America's Addiction. And it's about the addiction of uh, the U.S. to the petrodollar, which is behind, uh, you know, people go on, you, you get these activists and they're not really looking below the surface. You know, they're, they're just complaining about the obvious things. Yeah. But they're not really looking at the machinery below the surface that's fueling everything. And in America, it is the, uh, the problem is the addiction to the petrodollar. Mm -hmm. And this is where we've got all the problems in the Middle East and, um, yeah, so 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 that's a big problem. In, in other words, you know, America started printing money years ago, sometime uh, you know, in the seventies when Kissinger went over to the OPEC nations, and um, it they basically the deal that they made with those OPEC nations basically gave America a license to print money, and because of that, its citizens have been addicted to that ever since. And uh, it's just not sustainable without lots more death and tragedy and, uh, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. My God. Well, I suppose the pandemic's helped, doesn't it, on that one? But um, oh, yeah, another kettle of fish. <laughs> another kettle. It's huge, isn't it? But it's, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, blimey, there was there's a lot to sort of digest there, actually. I'm like, but... And there's just me listening to your music in the last couple of days thinking, oh, yes, this is quite exciting. But I didn't, I, you know, the backstory is, is kind of like, like, wow, blimey, I don't know how you cope with it all, really. It's, um, it's, beyond, it's beyond anything, isn't it, on so many levels. So but you've got books, you've got videos and, and probably more music to go. I mean, does, is it the case? I mean, you know. I mean, I've, I've had one or two moments in life where, where you sort of can't sleep at night because you get so anxious and there's situations that, ha you know, have happened that will just take years before you kind of can think about something else when you're on your own rather than always going back to that one 
annoying subject and those annoying people that you know stabbed you in the back of it so yes I mean I mean what do you sort of see in the next few years that you're hoping to accomplish well um I think at the moment the app is almost done so I I really want to maybe um turn that over to somebody else and um and and then I want to get cracking on the music you know so I I want to get an album's worth of music videos. I think I've got about four or five at the moment. So I need to do five more. And um, I'm looking at uh, getting updated equipment at the moment, a new um, sort of like audio interface for my studio. And um, the, so, you know, The Rock Chick's Guide to the New World Order it's not a conspiracy theory book and it's based on the idea of, um, you, you know, people talk about conspiracy theories and stuff. Well, there's, um, you know, there's no, no smoke without fire. So there's some truth to the idea that people say, Oh, the world is run by a small group of people. Absolutely. It is. But my argument is, um, you know, the problem with the sort of David Ikean conspiracy view is it, uh, it eliminates personal responsibility. It's this idea that here's the good guys and here's the bad guys. So it's a, a battle between good and evil. There's these shadowy figures on one side and there's all the good people on the other side, you know? When the truth is, you know, there's, there's an element of personal responsibility because every single person contributes to this culture and this mindset of hierarchy, ass licking, coke sniffing, money grabbing, you know, everybody's guilty of that. And cumulatively, you know, it forms a sort of, um, you know, we, we, we naturally, because of our, I mean, you, you just look at the, the way people worship celebrity and let celebrities get away with murder. You know, people like Michael Jackson and Madonna. I mean, honestly, the things that they do, you know, but, um, you know, and people don't realize that their own sort of like allowing this to happen contributes to the world we're seeing because, um, you know, the biggest problem is this, um, it, it's this problem of he who gets in first benefits disproportionately. I mean, that was true with gear sluts. We got in there, we got lucky, and then the thing just started growing exponentially. It's the same with Bitcoin, mm. you know. You, you get in and uh, you benefit disproportionately. And, you know, we, we have to start thinking in the future of different structures to uh, sort of like, I'm, I'm not saying get rid of hierarchies, yeah, but mm -hmm. try to prevent too much consolidation of power and too much, um, too much monolithic power, too much. Be, because the, the problem is, you know, that, you know, people think, oh, capitalism is wonderful, and it is, but there's a point of diminishing returns, yeah? Mm -hmm. This idea of, uh, you know, so like, the, you know, people think wrong. It's not capitalism or socialism. It's a sweet spot somewhere where you can get, you know, a good balance in a real efficient uh, society, you know, that where, where you're going to have wealth for everybody and you're going to have um, free time, leisure, art, you know, I, you know, for me, the highest goal for humankind 
in the thing we all should be aiming for is a world where we can all be artists. Because this idea that our highest goal is a world where everybody can be consumers is a stupid fucking goal. We should aim for a world, you know, where, you know, people don't have to be little, um, they, they don't have to have these little jobs where they, they spend their lives doing things they hate. And during their free time, they have to do things like virtue signal and, you know, contribute to charities to make themselves feel good or, uh, or do drink and drugs and do all these other things to avoid the fact that their lives and their jobs are miserable. So, you know, if, if we can't have it now for the world, that should be the goal. That should be the thing that humanity is aiming for, a world where everybody can be an artist. And by artist, I don't mean you have to paint or draw or sing. Like, you could be an artist. You could be really good at sweeping the street. You could love it. You could really enjoy your job. And you're an artist. If you really enjoy something with a passion and you become better at it <laughs> than almost anybody, you're an artist, you know? And, um, you know, I, I just think that that should really be the goal and not, um, not stealing somebody's website. <laughs> so just so that you can show off and have lots of money. <laughs> yes. God. Bye. Bye buy expensive things to show off nice watches, Rolex watches and crap like that. Hampers from uh, Fortnum and Mason, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. You know, basically, I mean, people shitting on other people's lives so that they can, so that they can buy crap. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, isn't it? It is a bit crazy. It is a bit crazy. Just one last thing, because I always ask this and it's a bit, you know, corny. But... Okay. But I've always asked it. I mean, if you could have said something to your 16 or 18-year-old self starting out in this journey, and you've got a few, you know, key little bullet points that you think, oh, that's good, keep doing that. Just be aware of this and this. Mm. I love this question. <laughs> I love yeah. this question. This is so good. Um, the only thing I would tell myself is, um, Meg, that contract that you and Jules signed, go down to the library and get a Xerox copy of it. Because he's gonna steal it. <laughs> um, well, well, I can't. I can't say that for sure he stole it. But he's the only one who knew where it was, and it went missing. It went missing. And he's the only one who knew where it was. Yes. Yeah, our little contract we drew up between each other with no lawyers. Yeah, we couldn't afford them. Uh, but he had his wife. Uh, yeah, I would have told myself, Meg, go. Xerox that piece of paper, girl. Indeed. And that is the end of the story. Well, for the moment. Um, a massive thank you to Meg uh, Lee Chin for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy always and uh, yes and all these have been archived so you can find those on spotify itunes podbean and when i say they've been archived all these interviews i've been doing with people so check them out they might just change your life well hopefully not anyway have a great week stay safe <laughs>